Hello, Revelers. I am going to do a longer than normal intro to explain a few things about this episode and what's going on. And then no outro. And if you are a binger, hopefully part two of this will come up and then you'll get to have that in just a day or two. So here's the deal. Last December, December 2020, Julie Malnowski-Hofling and I got together and had a wonderful time recording our episode. And then about a week later, she tells me that she did not talk about the things that she wanted to talk about and wanted to fix some things. And I said, oh, sure, no problem. I can just fix things and edit it in. Huh. So our first talk was almost an hour and a half. And then our second talk was almost an hour and a half. And then I spent a few months this past spring trying to figure out how to cobble them together. And then I threw my hands up in the air and said, Julie, I can't do it. This editing is beyond me. I can't figure out how to take the old and the new and splice them together and make it a nice coherent sounding whole. So I put it aside for a bunch of months and when I knew that it was almost back to school time, I brought it back out. I listened to both episodes. I decided I don't like them smushed together. I like them separate. So Julie will get two full episodes, all just about her life, her journey, why school is important, why teaching is important, why travel is important, why foreign language and cultural exchange is important. And much, much more. Just warning, there is a conversation about sexual assault in this. So just a little trigger warning there. As always, there are resources in the show notes about everything we talk about, including rape crisis center type places that you might be interested in looking into if this resonates with you. Which, of course, brings me to one of my sponsors, which is BetterHelp. That's betterhelp.com. They are not a crisis hotline. It is individualized online or over the phone, whatever works best for you, counseling that will help you um, unpack your issues and get the therapy you need. Now, Julie talks about how therapy at that time didn't really work for her, and that's okay too. You will hear uh, what did work for her, and, you know, maybe therapy's not right for you today, but it is right for you in a few months. Who knows? Anyway, if you think that a local therapist in your area is not available uh, at your hours or just doesn't have the specialty that you're looking for, Check out BetterHelp, use the code REVELREVEL, and I get a little cha-ching in my pocket for sending you there because they and Bookshop are my only sponsors because these are the things I believe in. I believe in hopefully getting you the help that you need as well as books are always helpful. Books are just great for so much and at so many different points in your life. 
So of course, at the end of the show notes, tons of books. Julie talks about lots and lots of books. She was actually part of a classics book club with her daughter, which seems to have been very life-changing for them. So without further ado, here's part one of Julie Hofling. Hello and welcome to Revel Revel. I am Lauren Drabble and today I have a friend that I haven't talked to in like, I don't know, 30 some years, Julie Malinowski, now Julie Hofling. Welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, that's awesome. So another Mount Carmel alum, but how did we meet? As I've been listening to um, the different podcasts, I like make a notation of like the connections that I have. And one of the connections that I feel like I have with you is that I also have a terrible memory. Oh, it's terrible. (laughs) So I was, uh, I don't know. I even have my yearbook right here from when we were uh, seniors. And I was like, where is it? Was it HRC class? Was it drama? Was it like, I don't know. Did we just all have the same friends? I don't remember like a moment where I met you. No, me either. (laughs) And I, I didn't even remember that you started in junior year. So let's start there. What brought you to Mount Carmel? Yeah. So another connection with, with other people in your podcast, it, my arrival at Mount Carmel came out of trauma. Actually, I was, I was born and raised in Seattle, Washington. And uh, when I was 14, my dad left. He um, met somebody else. And so they were going through um, divorce proceedings. And in the meantime, there was a a good family friend. The husband had a brother who was going through the same thing in San Diego. And so they decided to kind of do a love match. And so he was up visiting with his kids and introduced him to my mom and it was love at first sight. And so they fell in love and got married. And so I moved to San Diego about a week before I turned 16 and started going to Mount Carmel. So I I actually went to San Diego kicking and screaming because that's pretty traumatic to have to start all over again in the middle of high school. Wow. Okay. So kicking and screaming and at least like a whole year of trauma prior to leaving Seattle? Two years actually. Yeah. So the summer before my freshman year was a, it was a pretty traumatic summer. I, my, my dad left and also I was sexually assaulted that same year. So I was like, really like in a huge tailspin and uh, didn't realize I had clinical depression, but I just was sleeping all the time. Came home from school, slept, woke up the next morning, went to school, didn't really know, wasn't really in touch with what was going on with me. And so uh, my mom, you know, took me to the doctor and the doctor asked me questions and put me on some medication, which I hated, but I, I did go to some counseling and wasn't super helpful, but that was, that was a journey. And I was starting to come out of my, my clinical depression up in Seattle. And my, my friends were like, Oh, Julie's coming back. Uh, You know, the old Julie is starting to appear again. And so that was happening when I found out it was moving. So I was very resentful. That was kind of like adding insult to injury. Wow. And of course, as we've discussed many times on the pod, 
none of us knew any of this. Right? None of us knew what you were going through. Yeah. I'm so sorry. So did you get more help in San Diego or how did that, how did your life change in San Diego? Uh, so the, the positive and I'm, you know, there's, there's a, such a big picture here, you know, like you see this, so you see the journey and on the other side, you can see, I know that you've had different guests refer to it as serendipity or dumb luck or whatever. And I, for myself, firmly believe that it's that God's providence, that God had his hand on me in those, those dark times. I mean, to flash forward, um, when I ended up at UC Santa Barbara, for some reason, maybe it was through a psych class or whatever, I decided to volunteer at the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center. And going through that training helped me to understand more about what I had been through, helped me to, yeah, be able to reach out to other people and to, I guess, just with compassion and understanding, I was able to turn around and help other people. And it also helped me to heal and understand um, my trauma as well. So I love, ah, let's see, how do I put it? Going back to when you said about how you decided to volunteer at the rape crisis center, you know, I love when people say that I just decided to do something, you know, I just had the idea and they don't really, or haven't thought in a long time about what really brought them to that point. So do a little <laughs> awake regression therapy here, you know, so if you can try to think about, you know, what you're thinking about, what you're going through, what, how it came to you, because sometimes, you know, it's a person, sometimes it's a sign that brings this thing to you. And you're like, oh yeah, um, I've never seen that before, but now it's like always in my face or whatever, you know, so how did all that happen? Well, I think that I probably had repressed dealing with that just so that I could survive. Um, I had never shared anything about that, not even with my mom, but, you know, with my, with my family, I may have offhandedly said something to, you know, a friend or two, but it was always like, I never shared that. I, you know, shared it with the counselor in, in Seattle, but I didn't really, like, I didn't feel like that was helpful, a helpful time for me. So, um, yeah, I just kind of like sucked it up and was like, just going to move forward and just, you know, try to put it out of my mind. And when I had the opportunity to, to go and volunteer at the Santa Barbara Rape Crisis Center, I, I think that there was some little mm, feeling inside of myself where I thought like kind of a, um, I don't want to say, I don't know if you would say curiosity, but I was like, maybe I'm ready to deal with this now. Maybe I'm ready to kind of go there and, uh, and wrap like the craziness of that, how it, how it affected mm, the way I related to people, the way I related to guys, to my whole life. I was, I think I was curious to know, like, what are the side effects of that? You know, what, how can I um, understand what happened better to maybe understand what happened after um, and how my life unfolded after that. And so I think that there was a lot of 
curiosity uh, about maybe beginning to be a little bit more introspective, hmm, you know, um, to understand myself and to, I, I, somehow I must've just felt like if I could understand a little bit more and kind of come to terms with things, then I can really move forward. Cause I think I've still felt stuck. You know, you just push things down. They're still there <laughs> festering. Right. And when you, when you, I think when people push things down, if they get good at it anyway, they're closing off all of that openness and awareness and the ability to pay attention to what's really going on in themselves and the world, everything. And it's always, it just fascinates me how we can do that and then also have like a moment of awareness or a moment of like not even necessarily conscious awareness, but like your gut tells you, go and volunteer here, you know? And, and then all of these things start to happen after that because of something. And, you know, sometimes that trigger is a person. Sometimes that trigger is God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, and connections is what this is all is really about. And so it's a chance to investigate those people, those things that happen in your life that bring you to where you are today, really, you know, because it's that journey. So I know that you had like thought about a bunch of things you want to talk about. And I'm, I'm curious, have we even, we haven't even done any of those yet. That's so That funny. wasn't on my list. No, that keeps happening to people that things just come out that aren't on their list. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I, I, I don't know, but I, uh, I mean, I did like mention like three words when I had writ- kind of just written some notes for myself to kind of get some clarity about just kind of going going back and kind of tracing uh, my my path and all of that. I just very like briefly mentioned that, but it was more, you know, the reason why I came to Mount Carmel, the reason why I came to San Diego was because my my mom got remarried to guy that was in the Navy in San Diego. And that's how we came to, to San Diego. So that was really more the main, how I got there and how I came to where I am today, you know, like what I'm doing today. And it was, it was really interesting to, to look back and see the, the connections, but I didn't really, I mean, that's part of my trauma, but that wasn't, didn't have anything to do with moving San Diego. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of people don't sit back and look at the threads or as Remy said, connect the dots. And I think it's the point of life to do that, you know, to figure out how you got to where you are in your journey and what brought you there and who were the people or the forces and along the way that made you who you are. So what are the things that you wanted to talk about? And then I will probably bust them apart and find more things that you don't want to talk about. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, the, the, the dots that I didn't connect until really thinking about this was um, when I was a senior and I went, you know, looking around at different colleges to decide where I wanted to apply. One of the schools that I went to that I didn't end up going to was Loyola Marymount in Los Angeles. And I remember the guidance counselor or admissions counselor or whatever saying, so what, what do you want to major in? And I was like, mm, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, 
And so he or she, I don't even remember who it was, said, okay, well, what classes do you really like in high school? And he said, well, I really like English, my English class, really love my French class and drama. Those are the things that I really, those are standouts to me, the things I really enjoy. And so the suggestion then was to, well, why don't, maybe you might want to think about like poli sci and doing something, you know, diplomatic or something like that. And then I went, oh yes, a French speaking ambassador to, to a French speaking country, you know, that will involve drama in French and English. (laughs) So that's like, that was what I did in my mind, knowing nothing about poli sci. I'd never, I didn't read the paper. I didn't watch the news. I like, that was not a part of my world, my interest, anything. So it was kind of funny that that's what I fixated on. So I ended up going to Pepperdine, but for only one year, I did not like it. And so I took a poli sci class. I was like, oh, not, not loving this at all. And so I ended up transferring sight unseen to UC Santa Barbara. I had been to UCLA, but they didn't take sophomore transfers. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to, I guess I, I'm just going to go to Santa Barbara, I guess. So went there and then I just was taking GE classes and took this one class. They had a religious studies department and I, I heard people say, oh, this is a really interesting class on Buddhism. And so I signed up for the class and I was like, super interesting, like to kind of understand more about people who believe in that, what they believe. And, and it helped me. I'm like, well, if I ever meet somebody who's, you know, Buddhist, I'll be able to understand their worldview better. And, and I got an A in the class. So that was, I'm like, hmm, interesting, get an A, maybe I should look into being a religious studies major. And so that's what I did. I, I changed my major to religious studies and people were like, oh, that's really interesting. What are you going to do with that? I'm like, I don't know, but you know, wherever I go in life, I'm going to meet people that believe different things. So I feel like it'll be handy. Yeah. So that that's what I did. But, you know, I guess like fast forward, fast forward, I... Uh, at the end of, of college, when somehow I, I decided to observe in a, an elementary school class, uh, I don't even, I can't even tell you how that even happened. I also volunteered at a program called Isla Vista Youth Projects, and it was to help children that were impoverished um, circumstances, I guess, and to, to help them. And maybe that sparked an interest for me to work with children. So I ended up graduating and moving to San Jose. By then I had met my now husband and went to San Jose to kind of follow him and got my, my multiple subject teaching credential at San Jose State. And I was like, okay, I'm an elementary school teacher. And we got married and had kids. And I ended up homeschooling for 15 years. Oh, wow. I, we have four kids. I was done after two. My husband was not. He is the youngest of four. I'm the oldest of two. I like order. He thrives in chaos. <laughs> so, so we have four kids. I homeschooled for 15 years. When my third child was in eighth grade, at the end of eighth grade, we fired each other. And I ended up going back to teaching in a classroom. Uh, okay, wait, let's stop there. What does that mean to <laughs> fire each other? I have to, let's pick that apart a little bit. <laughs> okay, so yes, my third child is delightfully 
strong-willed. And so, yeah, it was like every day was kind of a challenge because she was diagnosed. So I have children that have different learning challenges. Um, My husband has dyslexia and ADD. My older two children have dyslexia. My middle two children, which means my second kid has both dyslexia. Uh, my middle two children have ADD. Um, my third child actually had, is, was diagnosed with ADHD. So busy, busy little girl. But like from the moment she could walk, she was disappearing. You know, I never believed in leashes for children, but um, she would be a candidate for sure. And it was just like, you're not the boss of me. When she was little, we, I, I used to sort of jokingly say she's either going to be like the first woman president or she's going to be on America's most wanted. It's going to like, like something is going to happen with this child because she's so strong willed. So yeah, at the end of eighth grade uh, and my husband was like, you know, you fight every day about school stuff and on all that. And he's just like, I don't think it's good for anybody. I think maybe she just needs to go to school and you need to go back to teaching. And I was like, it was so, I was so devastated. I was so devastated because I loved teaching my children. I loved seeing the light bulb go off. And when it goes off with my own children, like that's the best. So you, you kicked and screamed that whole time from basically kindergarten to eighth grade before you fired each other. I don't think so, but I learned a lot of techniques that really help me now uh, as I teach in a title one public high school. So I don't know. I, I think it's all, I don't remember that happening, but, and you know, my kids didn't, for the most part, weren't on medication. So it was, she was diagnosed, but not medicated. And so we were, I would try to like change some diet things and to, you know, take out some things that I thought might exacerbate the ADHD, but she really wasn't uh, medicated. So that sort of added, you know, to the circus, but, you know, she, she got a good education. She got a really good foundation, but it was, yeah. And, and it wasn't any easier when she went into school. Oh, okay. It was, you know, so wherever you go, there you are. So, um, right. <laughs> you know, so it was, it was a struggle. Yep. So I was an elementary school teacher, taught my kids, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic, blah, blah, blah. Didn't teach them any French. I mean, that was like a, a, that was like a passion of mine, but it like, it went on the back burner when I was like teaching my kids all the basics and all of that. So when, um, when my daughter and I fired each other, um, I was like, well, I am going to apply to teach at some private schools around here and whatever school I end up getting a job at, hopefully my, that's the school my kids will go to my last two, my older two had, had already graduated. And so I, I applied to a couple different places. And then I, I remember seeing the openings, um, a couple of different openings for jobs. And I was like, Oh, French, French. I love French. I, I would love to teach French. And so I clicked French and uh, so I got this a phone call back that uh, we would like to interview for a French teacher. And I was like, well, that's exciting, but also terrifying because I really haven't thought about French in 24 years. 
So I was like, what the heck am I going to do? And in the meantime, I had been long-term subbing. I, so I had my credential still, I just reactivated it. I got hired on and in a middle school, public middle school teaching life science. The teacher had like quit, retired, just spur of the moment right before spring break. And so they were desperate and I put my name in there and they were like, are you available? And so I ended up long-term subbing for like two months at the end of the school year. I'd I'd already finished teaching my own kids and it was extremely difficult. The teacher had no classroom management skills. So I had to go in. It was crazy, but it was that experience of uh, the principal said, uh, I righted the ship. It was terribly stressful, but I was like, I am going to be stronger than you seventh graders, you know, like, yeah, in the end, (laughs) they're like, respected me. But um, so I had that experience going uh, into teaching high school, which I had never taught classes full of high school students before. So I went into the interview. They had me just do a little tiny bit of like what I would do in a lesson. And they hired me. And I was like, seriously, what just happened? And then I went, holy crap, I have to go back to France for a little while to try to remember all of the French that I forgot over the years. So I did. I was like, I'm going to do whatever it takes to, to do the best job I can do to teach these students. So I went to France for one month that summer to prepare myself. And, and, that's, and I taught there for three and a half years. Uh, my kids went to school there. My daughter was there. She doesn't didn't have like a 504 planner an IEP or anything like that but they did have a um a place for her to go to get some extra help um but it was it was it took a village to get that child to graduate so yeah <laughs> anyway it wasn't so all that to say it wasn't any easier and in the, the last semester of her senior year i actually started working where i'm working now because there was a new headmaster and he decided to close down the French program because of budgets. So I was like, oh, so I finished up my French credential real quick because I didn't actually have my credential. It was in process, finished it, immediately got hired on at this Title I public school in Salinas and started there in January, again, going into, and I didn't mention that the French program at the private school was in shambles also. The teacher had not really taught actually. So the, the kids would go through, get A's and all that, but they came out knowing nothing. And so I had to go in and, and try to fix that. And, and then I got pulled into this other situation in this public school where the teacher had left after three weeks. She was like, I can't do this. She's like, I'm sick. And it took three months for her to actually leave. So I got pulled in and in January, again, these students were trauma, like abandonment issues, you know? So here I am, like, this is the third job in a row where I'm going into a situation where I like have to kind of put the pieces back together. So it was a crazy time. And my husband's like, why do you keep having jobs where you have to like pick up all the pieces? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, let's figure that out. <laughs> So you must have thought back about your schooling, your life, your family, your personality, whatever that has prepared you. And I'm not saying that you were prepared, like it's nothing, wasn't work, but 
brought you to that place where that you were, you were the person for that role. So what do you, what do you think that was when your past made you the pick up the pieces and put it back together and get the ship going the right way kind of person? Uh, wow. I, I like to solve problems. I am, uh, who were you talking to about your Myers-Briggs? I'm an INFJ. Actually, I haven't taken that test in a while, but I am one of the things that can be great and annoying to some people is that I like think of all the possibilities and I brainstorm. I'm like, let's just brainstorm. Let's just like figure it out and see if we can come up with a solution, a way to make this work. And so, yeah, a a lot of good things have come out of the synergy of, of brainstorming, but that's kind of what I do. I go, Oh, there's an issue. And I don't ever go, it's hopeless. Like, let's just give it up and all that. Sometimes I probably need Mm -hmm. to. And my husband's a good one for that. Like time to let it die and go on. And and I'm like, no, no, we can make this work. So I don't give up. Um, I want to figure out a way to, to, to make things work, to figure out solutions. But I want to just point out that guidance counselor at that school at Loyola Marymount yep. got it wrong because I'm now doing something with French, English, and drama. I'm a teacher. And so it was the right it was the combination of those things, but it was a completely different career. And I love what I do. Yeah. I, I love when you said the poli side thing, I was like, who is this person? They suck at their job. <laughs> but yeah, like teaching is is the great combination of those things. Have you heard um, Mr. Pachilio's episode? Yes. Because he talks about being yes. on stage, that that's his show. Yes. And mm-hmm. I, I bet you can relate to that. Yep. And the other connection that I had with Mr. Pachilio is that I actually, the second year that I was at my current school, they voted me teacher of the year. And I was a little, like a little embarrassed because, you know, we have like 150 teachers or something like that, you know, and here I am, I come in and like, why me? You know, why am I teacher of the year? You know, I love that I'm at, I don't, I don't have to have a job right now. I don't need to have a job. My husband has a good job. He's a fireman. He's a, you know, battalion chief. Uh, and um, I don't have to work. And so it's actually a really good feeling for me to be able to be where I'm at because I want to be there. I don't, I'm, I'm not compelled. I don't, I don't feel like, oh, you know, I have to, to make ends meet. I, I've, I feel very blessed that I don't have to. And so there's a lot of freedom in that to be able to do what I, what I'm doing because I want to be there. And that helps me every day. So I wonder if your quality of, we can figure it out. I'm not going to give up on this. If the kids feel that you're talking about them, I'm not going to give up on you, you personally child, you know, that kind of a thing. Maybe that's why you're successful. I think they do. I think they do. Even yesterday, you know, the, <sighs> this has been the hardest year ever <laughs> for teaching. This is harder than teaching my daughter. <laughs> like I cried a lot in the, in the beginning of this, because I, I still only see one or two kids faces mm-hmm. every day. So it's hard for me to feel like, 
Uh, and and this is where the the theater comes in because I'm I feel like I'm doing a a webinar <laughs> sometimes you know like I can't see my audience I hear them when I ask for them for answers and um, and all of that and and a, a couple of them have gotten brave and have started showing their faces but we're we're not allowed to require that of our students at our in our district because privacy issues because some students are living in such poverty that they don't want them to have to show their background of where they are. Now we, we can have them show a flash, like, well, no, 10 minutes, but I only make them do a flash because a lot of them, their connectivity is so bad that it'll kick them out of the meeting when they show their, um, their camera. So I just asked for a flash and there's one student. I'm like, every time he flashes this camera, he's in his car. I wonder if he has a home. And we have a lot of homeless. We have a lot of, they're, in, they're called in transition. We have a lot of families in transition. But I met with a student. So this is the, the, this is the blessing in this, this situation that we're in. I've never had more one-on-one meetings with students. We, we get to have these office hours because we're only teaching three classes at a time. So I'm teaching a whole year's worth of French in one semester, which is terrible. But... I'm only teaching three classes each semester. That means I have the afternoon for office hours. So I've had lots of students come and meet with me and some of them share stuff and struggle. And Madame, I just don't, I don't know. I just feel like I feel really hopeless. And so like I'm having those kinds of conversations with students and um Let's, let's make a plan. Okay. So we have this great like nest. It's called the nest because we're the Eagles um, at our school. So we have the Eagles nest and it's a place where students can go to get counseling support. We have a social worker at our school and, and all this stuff. So the students can get the social emotional help that they need. And then we have a lot of academic supports as well. Lots of tier one, tier two, tier three intervention things. Like we're all about intervention. But sometimes they feel safe talking to a teacher. And so um, like, you know, like, let's, let's get you plugged in there to get some help. But also, like, how can I help you? Do you like, what's, what's a struggle? And I'm, I kind of have identified some students, like, I kind of feel like you might have attention issues. Uh, and like, you know what, I had one of my kids had a struggle like that. And you know what helped him like, you know, t- doing this or making this list or, you know, squeezing like a little ball or something to help you focus or whatever. Just so I start brainstorming with students, like how, okay, so we can't make this like virtual learning go away right now, but let's figure out what we can do to try to like make it so that it can work for you a little bit better. So like a lot of that brainstorming happens with students and I'm like, okay, well, try that in a week and then meet back with me again. Let's kind of see how that works. So there's just like a lot of troubleshooting that happens every day (laughs) with, with um, just learning issues, with technical issues, all that. I'm like, you don't even know how much trouble, how much multitasking I do during one zoom class with my students. It's crazy. Well, you know, I've always been a big proponent of office hours. And I've always told people if a teacher has office hours, you use them go and see that teacher. And of course that has never really happened in high school before, you know, they might have that prep period, but then you'd have to go into like the teacher's lounge or, you know, no student wants to go in there. 
is totally different in college yeah. when you have a proper office yeah. and seclusion and stuff. And so it's yeah. nice yes. trying to find the, yes. you know, the silver lining in remote stuff is that yeah. now, now they can do that and get the benefit and not have to wait to college. So that's good. Yeah. And I think students overwhelmingly have said uh, that they feel like never before, like their teachers care about them as people and not just about what grade they're getting in the class. And so that's been another thing that I think uh, it's, it's built community in a different way. Oh, good. At our school. So for sure. So since you brought up the big C word, the good C word, community. Okay. I'm like, wait, what? Because you know that comes up a lot. So how what is community to you and how has it evolved, let's say, since since that traumatic leaving of Seattle? Mm. Oh well, um for me personally, my um the consistent community in my life has been um church and small groups. And um even at my school now, there's a group of of us uh, teachers who who um who are Christians and that the ability to be able to have that connection and to be able to just, I don't know, pray together and talk about the issues that, you know, that we have personally and at our school and, and all that really is very strengthening. And right now I'm, uh, we're going to a church over in Santa Cruz and it's, that's a, is a pretty amazing church. They are all about not only the the community, but being in the community at, at large. And the the church just raised like half a million dollars to for the food bank to feed. I don't know. It was like one point eight million meals. Um, and so there's like that's a big like the church community being a blessing to the the out the outward community. It, so it's kind of like circles, you know, and then I'm, I'm also, I, I sing on the worship team. So that's a community too. Like, I don't know, it's kind of like uh, smaller groups to, to larger groups. It's all connected. Let's go back because it is unclear to me. And I'm sure is very unclear to the general listener. How does a person who sounds like they didn't do any friends for like over 20 years <laughs> get a teaching job in French and let's start with your interest in it, you know, because it had to come from somewhere. You didn't start when they started uh, giving you that opportunity. So let's do the whole French. All right. Okay. So I took one year, I think uh, French in Seattle before we moved to San Diego, but then of course I finished the last two years at Mount Carmel with Madame Broughton and she was pretty inspiring. I remember walking into her class one day, she would have the desks all rearranged and it was the inside of an airplane. And so, and learning, you know, about what to say in an airplane, if you're traveling, another day it was an auberge. So we had to go check into a little hotel. And one day she was wearing her husband's tool belt. And so I'm like, why are we learning about tools in French? But she just made it very fun. And so that was very inspiring. And, you know, that I had... I feel like at Mount Carmel, the teachers really poured into us students and I didn't really realize how inspiring they were going to be. I knew that they helped me feel like I was smart and capable. And so my grades really improved. And then 
I went to Pepperdine. They didn't have French there, so I just took Italian for a year. And then when I went to UC Santa Barbara, I was back to French. I but I kept on with with French because it was I loved it. And so I at that time at UC Santa Barbara they did not have minors. So I couldn't minor in French and I didn't want to stay long enough to double major. And for some reason I was just focused on graduating and which was very foolish. I always counsel anybody who's in high school or going to college or whatever. If you have the opportunity to study abroad, do it. I did not. I did not take advantage of that. The reason why is because when I looked at classes that were offered, I was like, well, that's not going to help me graduate. That's not going to help me with my major. I'm going to have to go to school longer and I don't want to do that. So that was a foolish decision on my part to not go study abroad. So I never even did that in high school. I mean, in college where, whereas a lot of other people that went on to the Francophone, they studied abroad and I didn't do that. I did in San Diego work one summer for like a, a company where French students came for the summer and did like a, like an exchange program kind of. And so I, the, the English teachers didn't know any French. So for some reason I got, I don't even know how I found out about it, but I got this job and they were all my age. So I was like, just kind of butting around with French students, but yeah, I just kept taking French until all of my classmates were French majors. And then I just used all my electives for that. So that's what I did. So I I went to France a couple of times, but nothing long-term. Yeah. So I guess I just remember, I remembered a lot. And then of course I, when I went back, I actually went, I didn't go back by myself when I got the job. I went with San Jose state. They had a like universities in California. They all banded together and there was this ESA is the name of this company that kind of organized it. And so I went over with a hundred people from all over California and we stayed in these foyers, they call them. They're like um, kind of like dorms run by nuns. And so, and then we went to a classes in this L'Institut Catholique. It was like this Catholic Institute. It was near Sorbonne, but so we would go to classes in the morning. So we would get figure out what our level was and then we'd go to classes in the morning and and then in the afternoon we would have tours of different things and one weekend we went down to the Loire Valley to uh, to look at some chateaus and things like that so when I first got there I was like I was at this level but then as I remembered things I was actually skipped several levels because it all started coming back to me which is what I had wanted and so I advanced enough during that one month that I felt like, okay, I can go and give it my best and, and do a decent job um, teaching this year. Little did I know that none of the students knew any French anyway. So I could have like, I literally had to go back to the French one book for everybody, even the level three and four students. So, but then the next summer I decided I want to do this again. I want to advance myself even more. I, didn't want to spend the money to go travel to to France again. I found out about the Monterey Institute. It's now the Middlebury Institute for International Studies in Monterey. And so it was an intensive, a summer intensive with it was eight weeks long. It was so intensive that I actually ended up renting a, like a little studio from this um, a woman who's an artist down there. For that eight weeks, I rented the studio and stayed there 
because literally it was five hours of homework every night and it was intensive. I went to classes from nine to three and then I had five hours of homework and it's an hour drive for me to get there. So I'm like, I'm not going to come home after and, and expect to get that homework done and then commute again the next morning. So I would come home on my weekends. So my poor children were like probably thinking I'm having a midlife crisis. So yeah, eight weeks of that. And that really, you know, boosted my confidence and helped me remember a lot more and probably learn some new things that I didn't know before. So, and then the next summer I decided to get my master's in TESOL. <laughs> so, so that I, TESOL, do you know TESOL? I do, but go ahead yeah, and speak yeah. to tell for everybody. Listening. Oh yeah. Okay. So TESOL is teaching English to speakers of other languages and it's an umbrella term over ESL and EFL. And so you can teach people who come here to learn English, and then you can go to another place and, and teach English as a foreign language. So that's the umbrella of TESOL. And I did that because I wanted to get my master's. I love learning. And I was thinking about French, but then I thought that's kind of narrow. So, and my husband is, he's like, when I retire, we can travel and we can go like live in other places if we want to. And so I'm like, Hmm, maybe I could like, you know, do something so that I can be prepared to maybe go and teach English wherever we go in the world. So I think you listen to enough podcasts of mine to know that when people talk, I get like, because <laughs> I love, I love finding out if you have read the book and if not, then I get to give you the recommendation. Okay. So um, you said foyer. And so have you read The Elegance of the Hedgehog? <gasps> oh, yes. yes. Lérisson, that- Lérisson. I've, I, I haven't read it, but I have watched the movie. <gasps> have you watched the movie? Oh, I have. Oh, my gosh. No. Okay. And so you could probably read it in French. Maybe. Yes. And you could watch it. You know, the whole concierge thing just kills me. <gasps> I know, right? But I don't know how the concierge is done in the movie, but oh my gosh. I learned so much about France and life in France just from that book. Yeah. But I love it. And I have given it as gifts to people because I go, okay, look, it's serious and it's troubling, but at the end it's, it's so life affirming. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's one of the ones I actually show my students and it's such a, I mean, like the twist at the end, what the heck? Uh, It's like so French. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So my second favorite French book is actually not French. It's David Sedaris's Me Talk Pretty One Day. Have you read that? No, I haven't. Oh my God. Okay. There is no way in hell a French teacher is not allowed to not read that. You have to read that. You have to. <laughs> and I want to hear back okay. from your students because, okay, so. Me Talk Pretty One Day. I'm writing it down. So here's my story about that. Again, I don't know how or when I started finding out about David Sedaris, he sort of started, his career kind of got launched on This American Life, the show on NPR. Okay. Anyway, so he and his boyfriend, I think, moved to France because his husband is French. And so he is an American guy trying to learn French because he's living there. And so he's struggling and he's takes starts taking classes and he's struggling in the classes too and his teacher is so wickedly smart and evilly french (laughs) and what happens in the class is just hysterical Mm -hmm. and then how he has to buy everything in in multiples because he can't remember 
the singular masculine feminine. (laughs) (laughs) You, so here, so I I read a few books by him and then I get the me talk pretty one day, Mm -hmm. an audio and I'm dry. And this is when we lived in Georgia (laughs) and I'm driving down the road and I am laughing so hard (laughs) at this part. Uh, you know, probably his wicked teacher that I almost went off the road. Oh I was my laughing. gosh. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Okay. So that's my little, that's my little Christmas gift to you. Okay. You must listen, okay. not just read. No, I am going to. Okay. And then everyone be like, my God, why are you laughing so much? <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. What about your life's journey? What, what sort of books or people mm. or shows or movies or whatever okay. have come in your path? I have so many. I wrote down so many. I, when my oldest daughter was 16, we were in a mother daughter book club and we read all these great classics. We read Charles Dickens. We read some Jane Austen. We read Elizabeth Gaskell. Love her. Love The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Anne Bronte. Loved Elizabeth Googe, The Green Dolphin Street, George MacDonald, Princess and the Goblin, like all these others. Love the Mark Twain and how like the innocence abroad is hilarious. Probably my favorite. Oh, and just a couple of French-ish ones. There were two books that made me want to go to the the Channel Islands, not the Channel Islands in California, but the Channel Islands between England and, and France. Right. Green Dolphin Street was the first one that I read, talked about Guernsey. And it's right after World War II. And, the, and also it talked about New Zealand, New Zealand. And I like it. It's a, the kind of book that made me want to go to both places. And then, um, of course, the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Society um, was a right, great right. book. I love that. And I'm like, that's also on Guernsey. I like really want to go there. Loves reading Bringing Up Bebe, uh, which is a recent one by Pamela Druckerman talking about moving to France and learning about the way the French bring up children. But the two, I love The Count of Monte Cristo, like the look I have it here on my shelf it's 1200 pages my next goal is to actually read it in French so I read it a few years ago love it the movie's nothing like the book the movie's horrible <laughs> the uh, the American love you mean like, the Leo DiCaprio one yeah like no. totally oh, wait. wait oh me wait no that's man and iron mask sorry I'm getting my Dumas mixed uh, up. Who who is in the Count of Monte Cristo that you're saying so terrible? Oh my gosh, let me I can look it up. But it's like the 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 story ends differently. It's um, oh I hate that. yeah oh yeah it's like not I'm like things out is one thing, but changing things is just no. Yeah, I'm like this is not even the same. It's uh, I it was 2002. Oh Jim uh, Jim Cavis. Caviziel. Oh, I know who you mean. Yeah. He yeah. has a weird last name. It's hard yeah. to say. Okay. So yeah. Anyway, no, that like wrong. It's not even the right story. So, but my most, most, most favorite is, and this was a connection who talked about the lion and the witch in the wardrobe. This is a connection with Rishmi. 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 She talked about lion and the witch in the wardrobe. And she talked about some, like something bad happened. Like she didn't get a job that she wanted. And then mm-hmm she, it, it ended up being a good thing. So this whole, and look, I've got my copy of this and I went, I don't know if I can read part of it to you, but yeah, this, you can read a little, the passage. horse and his boy is my favorite of all of them. And it's kind of funny because it's maybe one, one that's a little more obscure to a lot of people, but it was so metaphoric this book for me. And I don't know if I should give any kind of background on the, the book or whatever, 
Um, no, but the, screw it. I mean, it's people just have to figure it out, <laughs> but it's, it's this, you know, this boy is, he grows up and he doesn't really know he's, he's has his father, but he doesn't really connect with him. He doesn't feel like he's uh, like, he belongs there. And it turns out he finds out that his father is going to sell him to this, you know, slave trader. And so he escapes with this horse who ends up being a talking horse because the horse is from Narnia. And so they, uh, they escape and they start going toward Narnia and the North and uh, this lion chases them. And he ends up meeting this girl who's also running away, who's a princess, but she's, she's going to be married to some guy that she like this old man and she doesn't want to do that. So she runs away too, also on a talking horse anyway. So it's their adventures and all these things happen. So there's this part, it's nearly to the end of the story, but the boy's name is Shasta and he is all alone on not the, the, the talking horse, but on a horse that doesn't talk a dumb horse. And he, it, the, the, the fog has come down. It's gotten dark. He's trying to escape to, to get to Narnia, to tell them they're going to be attacked by the people of the South and warn them. But now he's in the dark, in the fog, and he's just going along. And he says, I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe away from Tashban. I was left behind. Erebus and Bree and Huyn, those were the princess and the two horses, are all snug as anything with that old hermit. Of course, I was the one who, who was sent on. King Loon and his people must have got safely into the castle and shut the gates long before Rabidash arrived, but I got left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so sorry for himself that the tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all of this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark and he could see nothing. And the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had really no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. But now that he had really something to cry about, he stopped crying. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he'd only imagined it. And it goes on for a little bit, but finally he gets up the nerve and he says, Who are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak said the thing. Its voice was not very loud, but very large and deep. Are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the voice, the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all. And then he says, are, are you, please go away. What harm I ever have I ever done you? And once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath. So he told how he had never known his real father or mother and had been brought up sternly by the fishermen. And then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and of all their dangers in Tashban and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him out of the desert. 
He told about the heat and the thirst of their desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded Erebus. And also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you that there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so you could reach King Loon in time. And I was the lion, you do not remember, who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat wakeful at night to receive you. And so, um, anyway, I listened well, to this... <laughs> Go ahead. I was, I'll say something so you can catch your breath there. <laughs> I love when people read to me. So that was lovely. Mm -hmm. So this is your favorite portion of that book. I'm sure you'll tell us why once you stop crying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why it speaks to you so much. I listened to this all over again this week and, and it got me again in this part. And this is the, this is the moment when Shasta realized that, uh, that all of these things that he thought were bad things that were unfortunate things and were actually not mistakes. And they were, they were planned all along. And, and it was, it was Aslan who was guiding during certain times and allowing certain things to happen and guiding him to where he, he was right now. And even when he was a baby and explaining to him that he was even involved in that bringing him you know, the, the full circle of the story is that he was, so he is from the North. He's from Narnia and has a twin and was taken down into another place. And so now he's found his real identity. He's, he's going to the place that he he's from, but even at, when he was an infant, Aslan was there pushing him and, and guiding the situation to guide him to be able to be on this journey back to where he was supposed to be and, and to so that he knew his real identity all along so that's the for me that's the the providence you know i can look back and see like lots of traumatic things happened has happened in my life and lots of difficult things have happened but i can see god's hands in it and i can see his, him even in the, my dark times he's that 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 warm breath that's there and he finds out later when they go back over the pass that like, it's like literally like this precipice. Like if he had made a step to the left, he would have gone over the cliff. So he said, that's why he was next to me on my left to keep me against the edge of the mountain. So I wouldn't fall over the cliff. That was him guiding me in the dark. And even though it was a, a, a fearful time initially, it was, um, he was able to get through that dark time with that the invisible something next to him that was actually keeping him from falling to his death. So, yeah. So I'm not sure if I'm reading into this or anything, but as you were reading yeah. literally and then explaining, 
your voice changed a little bit when you were saying identity and his identity. And it just seemed like that sort of a, a pivotal thing for you about the identity. I so regret this, but we had a corruption in the audio file for Remy's oh, and, right. and a part that got cut out. This author told her, you know, you are not the trauma that happened to you. You are beyond that. You know, your yeah. identity is not the trauma. And of course, I'm not saying it as profoundly as right. she did, but I think that that would definitely resonate with you. So for sure, am I reading too much into it when I hear you kind of say the word identity? No, no, not at all. Mm-mm. Yeah. Uh, you know, Shasta was royalty and he, he lived his whole life as a slave. And um, when he was not. <laughs> yeah. But why do you think it makes you cry? Um, well, I, I guess some of it is just, uh, I mean, it's a good, it's a good thing. Um, because I, I, you know, just knowing that I don't, I don't live there anymore, you know, in that, that I, I guess when you've kind of been in the, the bondage of the trauma to be, to have the freedom, um, to, to see we living in freedom and to be living out my, my real identity. And for me, that's, you know, as, as, as a Christian, as a, a, a daughter of, of the King, <laughs> there's such uh, freedom in that. And I feel like I can also, because of where I am now and my identity now, my, you know, freedom in that now can, without those words, be able to speak that to um, my students as well. And, you know, not in so many words, of course, but, you know, you, your identity is, is bigger than your position right now. You know, the, that they can, they can aspire to, to their goals that their dreams, they can, they can meet them and to not feel stuck because of the, the, their life circumstances right now that there are, that it's possibility, that those are possibilities, a real possibility, their dreams can be realized. And um, I think that that's, that's something that I can, you know, bring as a blessing to my students, you know, to, to help them to realize, because I feel like my, my teachers in my high school had an impact on me by helping me to believe in myself and to believe in that I could achieve more than I thought I could. And so I, I, I feel like I'm able to take my journey, my, my own experience and be not, I'm not on the other side cause I'm not dead yet, but uh, you know, like I still have a lot of life to live and a lot of learning to do, but I feel like I can encourage my students um, and my own children, you know, like it's not over yet. You have a lot of life to live and there's so many possibilities and the journey is, is exciting and sometimes terrible, but resilient and, you know, like go uh, keep on that journey. You're going to discover who you really are, or you're going to, you're going to get there. It's, it's a journey. You know, I, we talk about moving and how traumatic it is on here a lot, even though (laughs) that was definitely not uh, something I foresaw, but it's interesting. Obviously there's good we wouldn't all know each other if we hadn't all moved. There's obviously good to it as well, but 
I like what you said about, I don't live there anymore. I don't live in the trauma anymore. And so that's another good thing about moving. You can move, not just physically, but emotionally. Mm -hmm. And like you were saying about that kid who's maybe living in his car, that's not your identity. Yeah. You're not the kid who lives in the car. It's just what's happening right now. And it's a funny thing with that kid. I could, we have this technology where I can see what the students are looking at on their computers to help with my classroom management. So I noticed that he's looking on, he loves mountain biking. He's, he's look, he's shopping for parts of bikes that are thousands of dollars. And he's watching YouTube videos of, you know, mountain biking and all of that. I happen to have a, um, a connection with a friend who's a photographer and she, she's like, Oh, I'm, I'm not home right now. I'm, pho- I'm photographing a, a bike race. And I'm like, what kind of bikes? And so she told me, and I was like, is, do you think there's somebody that's kind of like well-known or famous or something like that? And she's like, I don't know. Let me find out. And she goes, well, there, there's this guy. He was on, um, he was in the Tour de France, um, you know, the group with Lance Armstrong that, he was, he was on his team and there was kind of an infamy, the infamous doping issue and, and all of that. But this guy has, you know, gone on, has written a book and is like coaching and on all of that now and was at that race. And so I was able to contact this, this guy and he's interested in connecting with this kid to, because this kid doesn't engage at all in class. And I tried to reach out to him and speak to him in bike you know, bike language and he's starting to respond and he's starting to like participate in class a little bit and stuff. And and I think part of that is just, you know, hey, like see the bigger picture. All you want to do is bikes right now, but you know, you got to graduate from high school. And you know, if you want to, if you want to afford those expensive bike parts, <laughs> you're going to need to graduate and have a job and, and all that. And so I just found a way to connect with this kid that is, um, doesn't care about anything except his bikes and he may be homeless. And, um, but it's just another fun story in progress that hopefully I can be used to make a difference in his life and maybe change his trajectory a little bit. Well, that's why you were teacher of the year because you're going above and beyond. So good for you. (laughs) So I do need to let you go, but I'm going to, I did think of two more book things I want to tell you about. One is my other favorite French book. Okay. About this Australian lady who meets this French guy. And so she moves to France, I think Paris, I don't remember where, and what her life is like there. And it's called Almost French. Okay. And I can't think of her name right now. Okay. But yeah, Almost French is a great book. And then just a little side note, because I truly believe that universe brings you books out of nowhere. You know, they just start coming to you. Yeah. So, you know, it's the end of the year and there's all the best books list. And somehow I saw like a classics list and I like going through those, like, oh, read it, read it, mm-hmm. read it, mm-hmm. read it. And if only if I finished it, you know, do I go click, you know, check, mm-hmm. read it. And on this one list, there was basically, I had read everything except for something I have 100% no interest in. I don't remember what it was. And then the other thing was the Count of Monte Cristo. And I thought, oh, no, I never read that. And it wasn't really compelled to read it because like to finish the list where I was like, Oh, that'd be nice one day if I ever read that kind of thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then started watching a show called Lovecraft country. And 
They haven't explained why yet, but they keep showing the Count of Monte Cristo book on the bookshelf. Okay. So I've seen it like two, three times in the show. Mm -hmm. And then I've seen it someplace else all in the past two weeks. Okay. Like, all right, universe, I've got to read that book. (laughs) And then you brought it up again today. So I was like, yep, I've got to read that book. Oh, you will love it. It is so, oh my gosh. It's so, so amazing. Well, I will tell you when, I guess when I finish it, if I tell you when I start it, (laughs) that won't help. That won't help. So I'll tell you when I actually do it. Okay. I have one more book, one more book that I just started reading because I was listening to Brene Brown's podcast interviewing these um, two women, Emily and Amelia Nagoski, the burnout, the secret to unlocking the stress cycle. And that's like speaking to me and other teachers right now. Oh, I bet. So yeah. anyway, that's mine. And I, and I just got the audio too. So I might actually get through it faster of reading it, but yeah, I don't have time to read normally. And it's very sad, but because I love so much to read with a cup of tea and, and all that. So, but listening to your podcast is like, I need to start reading again. So yeah, thank you. Well, good. Inspiring. Well, that's a good place to end. <laughs> thank you so much for your time and your vulnerability telling us all this stuff. Thank you for letting me be on your podcast. <laughs> well, I'm really glad you reached out. Thank you so much, Julie. Love you. Bye. Bye.